0: I'm Jesse Thorne. R.L. Stein is the creator of Goosebumps, the kid's horror books. He's written about ventriloquist dummies that come to life, haunted garden gnomes, and take it from our man Bob Stein, Inspiration
1: can strike anywhere. I came up with this book title, I'm walking along, A Little Shop of Hamsters, which is a great title, right? So I had to do a book about it, but how, how do you make hamsters scary? That was a challenge. From MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye.
0: This week, the Bullseye Halloween Spectacular. We've got more with R.L. Stein. We have Monet Exchange from Drag Race, Anna Fabrega from Los Espookies. All that coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest in our Halloween spectacular doesn't need much introduction. It's R.L. Stein. If you're my age or close to it, odds are you read one or two or 20 or a 100 of his books when you were a kid. He has written over 200 Goosebumps books, sold millions of copies, inspired a TV show, two movies, and a video game. Now, Stein, as you are about to hear, can't resist a good title. Say Cheese and Die, Werewolf Skin, Go Eat Worms. We're basically just reading out of Wikipedia right now. And he has carried on that proud tradition with a new series, a compilation of short horror stories for kids, which he has titled Stein Tinglers. (laughs) And as you're about to hear, R.L. Stein is just as you would hope he would be, an absolute delight. Let's get into it. R.L. Stein, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you here. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Did you read series books when you were a kid? Did you read Tom Swift or the Hardy Boys or something?
1: Um, I found those old books. Uh, my father had had them. And I found a bunch of them. But I didn't read books when I was a kid. Not at all? No. I read only comic books. I was a comic book freak. And so, I mean, this. I have all the wrong answers for these things. I should tell oh. you about how much I loved children's books and how inspired I was. But, uh, no, I loved comic books. And, you know, when I was a kid, there were those incredible horror comics, Tales from the Crypt and The Vault of Horror, and they were just horrifying, gruesome, with wonderful art. And they were funny and scary at the same time. Those, those were very big influences on me. Where did you get your comics? At the barbershop. The, the barbershop had, this is a true story, the barbershop had a big stack of these horror comics. And uh, one day I bought some and brought it home, and my mother wouldn't let me bring them into the house. She said, these are trash. You can't have these. And so I used to go to the bar. I used to get a haircut every Saturday morning so I could read these comic books. I had less hair when I was a kid than I do now. (laughs) How old were you when you tried to bring them home? Nine or ten. I mean, I'm impressed that the barber sold them to you. (laughs) Well, he didn't sell them. They just had, you know, for reading in the barber shop, they had a big stack of them. And I would just go. I just loved them.
0: You're like going down the the line there. You're like, Sports Illustrated, not interested. Playboy, not (laughs) for me. Horror comics, yes, please, thank you.
1: Right. But my friends and I all carried around big stacks of comic books. We used to trade them and read them under a tree in my front yard. And I didn't really discover books until I was about 10. What books did you discover when you were 10 or 11? Well, This is my librarian story, how a librarian changed my life, okay? It's one of my few nice, really nice stories. I grew up in the suburb of Columbus, Ohio, and uh, one day my mom dropped me off, I was this kid, at the public library on Main Street, this little library. And the librarian was waiting for me, and she said, Bobby, I know you like comic books. I have something else I think you will like. And she took me to a shelf of Ray Bradbury stories, and that really changed my life. And you
0: were like middle school age, like 11 or 12?
1: I was 10, 9 or 10. And the stories were just so imaginative and so beautifully written and all had great twist endings. And uh, so Ray Bradbury turned me into a reader. And then I started reading all kinds of science fiction. I, I discovered books. I started reading Isaac Asimov and Robert Sheckley and the Dune books and all, all those things. Were your parents readers? No. No they weren't. My dad was a blue-collar worker. My family was very poor and my dad was a blue-collar worker. He unloaded refrigerators in a warehouse and he never read anything. And my mother just she never really understood it, you know, what I was doing. When I started writing, I'd be staying in my room typing, writing stories, writing little joke books and things. And they would, my mother would say, What's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Go outside and play. What's wrong with you? They didn't get it. Worst advice I ever got, right? (laughs) Stop typing and go play. Did
0: other people in your life get it? Like, were you handing out joke books to classmates at school or your teachers?
1: Here, I have the, another wrong answer. No teacher ever really encouraged me. So I was a very shy kid, and I do these little magazines, the joke magazines. I'd bring them in and pass them around, and you know, for attention. And my teachers would say, Bob, please, please stop bringing these in. Please stop. And I, I often think that if they hadn't asked me to stop, I might have stopped. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I understand that. T- I was only ever a disappointment to my
1: teachers. <laughs> yeah. I, every report card I ever got said, Bob isn't working to the best of his abilities. <laughs> every single report card. <laughs> Once my
0: AP English teacher wrote on a paper that I submitted, Jesse, I fear... You will never take anything in life seriously.
1: What a wonderful thing to say! What a yeah! What a compliment, right? It was very motivating. No, I would yeah, I would love to get
0: that. God bless my mom. She came in and yelled at him. Oh yeah, oh that's good. That's good. Thanks, mom. Thanks for that one, mom. But you went to college,
1: um, yeah, so you must, have been, one, you must
0: have had something going.
1: I had the first one in my family. I, you know, I lived in Columbus, and we couldn't really afford much, but when I, I tell college students this, when I went to Ohio State, the tuition was $125 a quarter. It was $375 a year. I always say worth every penny but we, my family was so poor we actually had to borrow money so i could go and do that and i had the worst college experience you can have i lived at home did your siblings go to college yeah my brother did my brother did you bill. have to convince your folks to do the money borrowing um yeah i don't remember what happened with bill i don't remember how he how he did it but it was you know it was it was tough but I went to college because uh, they had a humor magazine. When Back in the 60s, every college had a humor magazine. And I wanted to work on the humor magazine. And at Ohio State, there was a magazine called The Sundial, which had been around from 1917 or something. James Thurber was editor of it. And I was editor of the ma- magazine for three years, three years in a row. That's all I did in college. I just did this humor magazine. Did you know that was there when you were applying to school?
0: Yes. Had you like picked it up at at coffee shops near campus or something?
1: Yeah, I'd seen it, you know, in high school I'd seen it. And I I got to do this magazine. And in those days, the editor of the magazine got 23% of the profits. And it paid my way to New York City. Because I was desperate to get out of Columbus. I'm just impressed it was profitable. What? No, come on, Jesse. It was good. It was good. We sold a lot. Was it currency
0: on campus? Like, could you get anywhere by saying, hey, I'm the editor of that?
1: Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, the opposite, I would think. Was it your plan to do that with your life? already? Yes. I knew when I was nine, I loved doing it. I see, I started out, I wanted to be a, a, you know, I love comic books. I wanted to be an illustrator. I wanted to be a comic book illustrator. And so I started doing little comics, fourth grade, fifth grade, and I'd bring them in and the kids would say, well, Bob, your drawings suck. You're terrible. And I would look around at what everyone else could do and I couldn't draw anything. So I realized I had to write. And then I started writing all this stuff, and I just loved it. I would stay, I think partly because I was this fearful kid and I could stay in my room and type and create my own people and worlds. I think that's one reason I liked it so much.
0: I mean there's there's being fearful of, you know, going out social situations, the kinds of things that keep kids in their room. But it is a pretty audacious plan to think. Yeah, I'm gonna go to college to do this impractical thing. Then I am going to move to New York to do that same impractical thing.
1: Right. I just I wanted my own humor. I I loved Mad Magazine, as with many people, a very big influence on me. And I wanted that's what I wanted to do. What was your relationship to? The counterculture at the time, when you were in school and, and just after, as it kind of exploded? I I was not part of it at all. You know, I'm this college kid living at home. I thought it was all fascinating very intriguing. But I was not, you know, I was this shy, repressed kid guy. I was never really part of any of that. Did you date in college? Um, yeah, it was near the end of college. But I was a very shy guy. No, you know, no one ever asked me that question before. <laughs> That's interesting. Were you shy at the magazine, or was it like your world? No, that was. I was the editor. I was the boss. So, you know, we could do what I wanted to do with it. What was your plan when you moved to New York? My plan was to—first, I, first. I had to support myself. I moved to New York. I didn't know a single person in the city— and so I had to start getting jobs and to support myself. But my plan was to find a way to work on a humor magazine and to write funny novels for adults. I wanted to write humorous novels for adults. People have forgotten Max Shulman, who was a, a very big humorist in the Midwest. Uh, he wrote the Adobe Gillis books. I don't know, and people don't remember any of this stuff. But uh, he was a real hero of mine, and so were other really funny writers, and I wanted to be one. But I ended up, I I had to get work. My very first job in New York was making up interviews with the stars. I went to work for this woman who had a brownstone on 95th Street. She worked out of her brownstone. This was before working at home was, you know, the thing. And she had six movie magazines that she had to fill every month, six monthly movie magazines. And there were three of us on the staff. And we sat all day and made up interviews with movie stars. I would come in in the morning and she would say, write an interview with Jane Fonda. Write an interview with Diana Ross. Do an interview with the Beatles. And I would sit down and write an interview. That was my first job in New York. It's a great job.
0: Did you have to phone them in to Diana Ross's publicist? Or no. Was they, it no, to No nuts? one knew.
1: No. This was way <laughs> before People magazine. No, we just made up everything. Or oh, we'd have a little news clipping and make up the story. I remember one day I wrote two articles. One was those rumors about Tom Jones. They're not true. And then that afternoon I wrote the rumors about Tom Jones. They're true. You know, for a different magazine. <laughs> it was very creative work. And I learned how to write really fast because I had to do two or three interviews a day. It was good training.
0: Did the three of you like pass them between each other to, to spell check
1: or whatever? <laughs> I, there was no time for that. <laughs> no time for that. <laughs> Who are the other people that worked with you? I don't remember at all. <laughs> Come on, this was 50 years ago. You know, it's a long time ago, but um, I thought it was a good job. For some reason, I'm imagining
0: the woman you worked for, like carrying a Pomeranian and wearing a fur shrug.
1: No, uh, well, but you're like pretty close. you pre- You're pretty close. She wore a brown bathrobe. She never got dressed. <laughs> she never got dressed. And the thing is, she never went to the movies. <laughs> she had six magazines. How did you even get the gig? Was it like an ad in the newspaper? In, in the, yes. In those days, there were classified ads in the Times, it, you know, before, you know, they lost them all. And on Sunday, there would be two or three pages of jobs, publishing jobs, listed in the Times. And you would go through the Times and circle jobs you were interested in, publishing jobs, and then go call them on Monday. That's all gone, of course. One of my favorite movies is A Thousand Clowns, and there's a
0: scene where yes. the protagonist and his semi-son are uh, are, are going through the, the classified job listings. And I, I think often of Murray Burns having um, an ex opti as an exec assist. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's great.
0: But I mean, but, let's be frank, your career wasn't that far off. I mean, you're a few years later than that mm-hmm. film,
1: five years-ish. Yeah, it was like 68, 69.
0: Yeah. So you're trying to uh you're trying to be to the extent a comic novelist can be credible, you're trying to be a credible comic novelist. And you're writing you have literally the strangest, goofiest
1: writing job on earth.
0: How long did you do
1: it? Not very long. Not very long. And then I got—I had a horrible job for a year. But, you know, I had to support myself. I was assistant editor of Soft Drink magazine. <laughs> and I, I see, you're laughing. <laughs> it's not funny. It wasn't funny. I wrote about new syrups and flip-top cans were coming in. And bottler, I had to cover bottlers' conventions. And Yeah. And I did that for a year.
0: Did you go to the bottlers
1: convention? I had to. What was it like? I had to photograph them. Listen, there were three different soft drink magazines. It was very competitive.
0: (laughs) What were the competitors?
1: Beverage Digest. I forget the third one. (laughs) It was dog-eat-dog business. I was sharing an office. We shared an office with Candy Industry Journal, <laughs> and, and they got much better samples than we did.
0: Did having these weird jobs change your career goals or your ideas
1: about what you could do? No, not really. I kept, you know, I'd write at night and everything. The thing is, nobody wants humorous novels for adults. Nobody ever wanted them, you know. That's not a good career choice, and I, but I got lucky. But I would t- everything that's ever happened to me really happened by accident. It wasn't my thinking it out where I ended up, really. So I answered an ad for, uh, at Scholastic, and I ended up writing for kids. I went to work at Scholastic. I was assistant editor of Junior Scholastic magazine, writing history and geography articles. And it was a magazine, you know. It was better than soft drinks, so I went to work there. But I never, I never thought of writing for kids. It wasn't, wasn't my dream.
0: What did they tell you when you got there? Like what? What was the mandate?
1: Well, it was a, a weekly news magazine for kids, and they had you know, Scholastic had a whole bunch of them at the time. Were you
0: bad at it to begin with?
1: No, writing's the only thing I'm good at. You, you can ask my wife. That's the only thing I'm competent at. No, I was always, I could, you know, I'm a good writer. I had been a teacher for a year back in Ohio, you know, trying to avoid the draft. And um, so I, you know, I knew a little bit about education. And uh, I mean, I wasn't great at it. I never liked to do research. I'm i in my books now. I never do research. I make everything up. So, uh in one article I got the capital of Brazil wrong. <laughs> and James Mitchner wrote in to say that I'd gotten the capital of Brazil wrong. Why was he, he reading Junior Scholastic Magazine? He did not. Yes, James Mitchner said, "I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> Rio de Janeiro is no longer the capital of whatever." <laughs>
0: Sincerely, James Michener, author yeah. of Shogun.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. What did he write? Hawaii, <laughs> he wrote. He wrote a lot of things. Did you learn something about what was
0: different about writing for kids relative to, say, writing for uh, syrup distributors?
1: Yeah. Here's what I learned. There was a thing called the Dale Chaw Method. Is this interesting to anybody? I don't know. It's interesting to me. Yeah? Oh, good. Um, It teaches you how to write to a grade level. So it gives you like vocabulary tips and what what you can do, like writing at a fourth grade reading level or writing at a fifth grade reading level. And this turned out to be really valuable as far as goosebumps goes. So I learned all this. And then I at Scholastic, I was given a magazine, a social studies magazine. It was for kids, junior high kids, 7th and 8th graders, who read at a 4th grade level. And so I could then practice and figure out and make sure that these kids could read it. It was a 4th grade level. And this really helped me because Goosebumps is the same. It's at a fourth or fifth grade level. It never goes above that. What were the things that you had to modulate to hit the grade level? A sentence length, for one thing, and just length of words and you know, simple vocabulary words. There's nothing challenging in Goosebumps. You never learn any new words in it.
0: Yeah, and you have to focus on what you are actually trying to write
1: or say, because you can't dance around it. Yeah. Well, what's hard for me is, you know, writing for 10-year-olds, is that harder than the language part, is that they have no references. They don't know anything. My, You know, they were born in 2012, if they're 10, right? So they don't remember anything. They don't know anything. They have no references that to me is the hardest part. You're like crossing out your your BJ and the bear jokes. <laughs> the yeah. Those always, get, ta- the was always get taken
0: out. <laughs> <laughs> your first kind of career success was writing humor for kids. That was kind of the track that you ended up on. Did you think that you had By the time that you were doing that and, you know, making a middle-class living doing that, did you think I have found my career
1: or did you think
0: I am on my way somewhere else?
1: No. I did a humor magazine for Scholastic called Bananas for 10 years. I think from like 75 to 85. And that was my life's dream. I had my own humor magazine. It was all in color it was. I had a whole staff of artists and writers, and I did it for ten years. And that's really that's what I wanted to do. And when the magazine folded, and it was over, and I was out of Scholastic, I figured I would coast the rest of my life. What kind of coast? I just thinking, coast. I don't coast know. on
0: you You just head out to dinner. The oh, that's the bananas guy. Dinner's on us.
1: <laughs> no, I, I had done my life's dream. I didn't have any other real goals. That was it. I, I had no idea what was in store for me. And, of course, that was another accident. I I was never, never thought of writing scary stuff. Who asked you to write your first scary book? A woman named Jean Fywell, who was the publisher at Scholastic, and a friend of mine, and, um, we were having lunch. She showed up late for lunch. She was angry. She just had a fight with a guy who wrote teen horror. And she said, I'm never working with him again. You could write a good teen horror book. Go home and write a book called Blind Date. She even gave me the title. I didn't know what she was talking about. What's a teen horror book? But I was at that point then where I didn't say no. You know, I was all totally freelance. I didn't say no to anything. I said, sure, no problem. And I went running to the bookstore to see what people were doing with teen horror. And I read uh, Christopher Pike books and a whole bunch of other, Diane Ho, Richie Tankersley Cusick, um, Lois Duncan. They were all writing teen horror. And so I, I read those books to try to find out what it was because I didn't know. And then I tried to figure out what I could do that would be different. And I wrote Blind Date, and it came out like a year later. It was a number one bestseller. It was number one on Publishers Weekly list. I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? I'd never been close to that list with the funny stuff. And then a year later, she asked me to write another one. called It was called Twisted. Number one bestseller. And I thought, forget the funny stuff. Kids like to be scared. And that's how it happened. It's kind of embarrassing because it wasn't my idea. It's a pretty fine line between being scared and laughing. Well, I've talked about this, but horror makes me laugh. I don't get scared. Maybe there's something missing in my brain. I think horror is funny. I mean, going back to those comic books, they were hilarious, the horror comics. And if you go to like a horror movie, and a shark, the shark jumps up and it's chewing the teenager to bits. I'm the one in the theater who's laughing. People say to me, after I read one of your books, I had to leave all the lights on. I had to lock the doors. I was so scared. I've never had that feeling. I don't know what that feeling of being... I read Stephen King. I read, you know, I can admire them. But I don't know that feeling of being scared. I, it always makes me laugh.
0: Even if you watch, like, uh, The Shining or The Exorcist or something like no, that? No, pretty much. Something really genuinely <laughs> upsettingly <laughs> not terrifying? Very often. Like, it's one thing to laugh at a shark eating a teenager, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: not very often. Not very often. Bradbury can be a little unsettling. Yes. I recommend to kids, uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, that novel about the evil carnival setting up in this Midwest neighborhood. That's a very scary book and beautiful, beautifully written. I feel like
0: every, you know, sixth grade English teacher passes out like the veldt and then kids read it. And I know, I mean, like I liked it, but
1: I found it deeply distressing. (laughs) Yes. Or that one, or the one about the rainy day, you know, that one where it just rains all the time and there's going to be one sunny day and everyone's looking forward to it with the rain stopping and this kid somehow he's trapped inside and he misses it. That's the other story that's really disturbing.
0: I mean, the things that kids are scared of are not necessarily angry giant hamsters as (laughs) in one of your books or, (laughs) you know, evil ventriloquist dummies as in 70,000 of your books. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not necessarily like those particular subjects.
1: I feel like it is being alone, being trapped. Being being lost, yeah. Uh, being somewhere weird in the dark, being somewhere unfamiliar, being by yourself when you don't want to be. See, it's in Goosebumps, I don't really want to scare the kids. I don't really want to terrify kids. You know, you just want to get them reading. So I don't do. You know, I don't really get too deep into the real fears. It's a lot safer to do a dummy coming to life. <laughs> or or a, a giant evil hamster or a bunch of giant evil hamsters, I believe. Listen, I came I up with that correctly. book title. I came up with this book title. I'm walking along, A Little Shop of Hamsters, which is a great title, right? So I had to do a book about it. But how, how do you make hamsters scary? That was a challenge. I had to do it because of the title.
0: There's like a guy that works for Star Wars, for Lucasfilm or whatever. Yeah. And I think that his job is just making sure that all the pieces fit together right. You know, they do this at like the Marvel movies too, but I think there's a lot, there's a lot of Star Wars stuff. So yeah. there's somebody who's just in charge of making sure that nobody writes anything or says anything that contradicts what anyone else says. And I was thinking like, at the point where you've written, which you have literally hundreds of scary books for kids, how on earth
1: do you keep track of what premises you've already used? Oh, I have good editors. My editors <laughs> have a memory. No, <laughs> seriously. You know, I, you know, they say, Bob, you did that. You've already done that title. Bob, you did that in number 18. You did that. <laughs> seriously because it's you know it's impossible i've written every story a human can write right so it's hard it's a real challenge to not repeat yourself i mean it's like season
0: 14 of a sitcom or something you know like how <laughs> yeah. do they make more it's always sunny
1: in philadelphia is it yeah that's awesome right right that they can still no, it's come the off same with. this is my problem with slappy the dummy I shouldn't say this, but, you know, I'm sick of him. I didn't say that, but because I've written 15 books, 15 books about a dummy that comes to life. How many stories are there? I actually killed him in one book, The Ghost of Slappy, but then I had to bring him back. He's too popular. Do you have a corkboard or a
0: notebook or something that has no potential book titles written on it
1: no i mean i'm always thinking of titles and i have a piece of paper and i'll I'll keep a list of titles that's to be serious i don't think of ideas anymore i only think of titles if i can get a good title it'll lead me to the story so i don't try to think of ideas What's an example of that? I mean, we can Little Shop of Hamsters we already talked about,
0: but what's another where the title led you to the story?
1: Say Cheese and Die. That's a classic. Yeah, well, I, the words flashed in my mind, and I had it. So what could it be about? And then I had to start thinking, you know, what if there is a camera? What if some boys discover a camera, and the camera takes pictures of things, bad things that happen in the future? And they start taking pictures, and that's how that story evolved. But it came from the title. I'm working on a Goosebumps book for next year called Scariest Book Ever. That's going to lead me to some kind of story, I hope. But I, you know, I'm, that's backwards for most authors, right? Most authors get an idea of what they want to write, and later on they think of a title. But I have to start with a title. Even more still to come with
0: R.L. Stein. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, it's our annual Bullseye Halloween Spectacular. My guest is R.L. Stein. He's the creator of the Goosebumps books, one of the best selling book series in publishing history. Let's get back into our conversation. Why do you still write your books?
1: Why do I still do it? Well, there's two questions <laughs> herein.
0: Number 1 is yes. obviously you made a lifetime's worth of money when at the peak of goosebumps, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure you have a beautiful apartment and you don't have to worry about whether you can afford to go out to dinner if you feel like it.
1: I'm comfortable, yes.
0: Yeah. So so that's so that's one piece of it. One is why I keep working? The other part is why keep working on this, right? Like why not just have a thousand other people be R.L. Stein
1: and you just check the box
0: next to approved. No, that's no fun.
1: (laughs) I I think I, I keep going. I think it's my total lack of imagination because (laughs) I don't know what else I would do during the day. I couldn't, what would I do? This is what I've done, you know, 30 years of goosebumps. But I still enjoy it. It's the thing. I don't dread having to sit down and start another book. I don't dread it at all. I still, it's actually, I have to tell you, I mean, I have a lot of bad things happening in my life, personal things, and we had COVID for two years, and three or four hours a day that I spend writing, or maybe I'm being too serious here, but those are the best hours of my day. That
0: said, you could be writing humorous novels for adults.
1: Well, I've gotten to write humorous novels for kids. I just did three stories about the garbage pail kids. That was fun for me. I didn't have to be scary. And, you know, I've done a couple funny series for kids. My daughter downstairs is 10 years old, and she said... Oh, nice.
0: He wrote these Garbage Pail Kids books, and they're even grosser than
1: the cards. (laughs) That's a very nice compliment, too. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) My grandson is eight, Dylan, and he's carrying on a family tradition of not reading my stuff. My, (laughs) My son's claim to fame was that he never read one of my books. (laughs) <laughs> Isn't that horrible? He was the right age. That was just his way of getting dad. You know, making like nuts. Nancy Drew or nothing for me. Yeah, Sorry, was, Dad. <laughs> yeah, it was um Garfield Comics. That's all he read. Just Garfield. Anyway, my grandson, he's eight years old, and I have this new short story book called Stein Tinglers, because I need a, another series, right? Right. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's because you thought of Stein tinglers, and you couldn't leave it alone. (laughs) I know.
1: That's why they bought the book, of course, for the name. (laughs) And um, I dedicated it to him, and I said, Dylan, sit down. We were out at the house, and sit down on the couch. I'm going to read you one of these stories. I'm going to force him to listen to one of the stories, because I knew he wouldn't read it. He's He's busy playing Minecraft all day. And so I sat down and I read the story about bugs. It was one of the better stories in Stein tinglers. And, read, and he sat there very intent, sat there, read it. I said, well, I finished. Well, what do you think? It's very confusing. <laughs> That's it. That was the whole reaction. It's very confusing. <laughs> 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 Why did you want to write even shorter? Because um, I'm stupid. I, I'm stupid. Why? Who would want to write 10 short stories? It was a crazy idea. It's like writing 10 novels. You need 10 beginnings, 10 middles, 10 good endings. And I'm doing three of these books. I just finished the one for next summer. Are you proud of your work? And two sub-questions on this. <laughs> one,
0: one line is, are you proud of your work? In its constituent parts, and one is: Are you proud of your work in the aggregate?
1: Uh, well, I'm proud of the millions of kids who got into reading from my books. That's what I'm. I never get tired of hearing parents who come up to me and say, "My kid never read a book in his life, and I caught him under the covers with a flashlight reading a Goosebumps book." Last, I never get tired of hearing that, and I just—it's so gratifying all these just millions of kids who turned to books for entertainment and who got it from from reading my books as a guy who was writing 12
0: books a year at at the peak of your goosebumps productivity you can't possibly have been too actively involved in all of the peripheral goosebumpsery no a lot of it is pretty good I was watching the old Goosebumps TV show when my daughter was at the peak of her Goosebumps obsession.
1: I was like, this is really, this is not bad at all. No, I was pretty lucky. I've been very lucky with, like, the two Goosebumps movies. They didn't have to be good, and I had no input in them at all. And they were both really good. And the TV series— Yeah, they're
0: legitimately good. They're really fun movies.
1: Yeah. And the, the Goosebumps series back in the 90s, we had these two guys who just got it. I had no time to you know I'm writing a book a month I had no time to work on the TV series and they just got it and they did it so well I'm that's that's all luck of course could have been awful Did you
0: really write the like storybook
1: version of Big Top Peewee Uh yes I did um you know I did novelizations for quite a while, before Fear Street caught on. I did most of them for Scholastic, I think.
0: Did somebody just like hand them out at a meeting once a week?
1: Well, they would sign up. They would get rights to a movie, and then they'd ask an author to do, write a novelization real quick. I did the novelization of Spaceballs, the Mel Brooks movie. <laughs> that. that was fun. That was really fun. <laughs> I then I added a lot of jokes, though, and then I thought, "Oh my God, he's really he'll be furious about it." But I never heard from him, of course. <laughs> <clears throat> but with Big Top Peewee, as I recall, Peewee hated what I did, and he oh, asked no. that he asked that the book go out with just photographs, and not my text.
0: Oh. He's very careful about Pee-Wee. I made a radio show with him, and uh-huh. never have I met someone who is so I mean, look, Pee-Wee's one of the greatest things ever, so I would be careful about it
1: too. So talented. But he's extraordinarily careful with it. Uh-huh. I don't remember what his problem was with the work <laughs> I did, but I think he hated it.
0: It seems like it seems like at some point you came to enjoy the craft part of this, like somewhere between writing fake movie star interviews and accidentally becoming a squajillionaire on the, you know, completely being blindsided by that. I'm sure. Um, Totally. There must've been some point where you were like, you know what I like? I like, Sitting down and solving the problem of how do I make this into something that kids will get a kick out
1: of—that's true. It's puzzle solving. Do you remember
0: when you started feeling that way? No, and no,
1: it, it just—you it, know—it just developed. It developed with the success. I wrote for twenty years before anyone noticed. Really, when no one was noticing, did you not feel that way? I just kept on. I, you know, had to make a living and I loved writing and I wrote all kinds of things. I wrote Bazooka Joe comics. For real? Yeah, I wrote jokes. I got $25 a joke.
0: Did you write the gags for the panels or the jokes that ran down at the bottom?
1: Down in in the bubble gum.
0: Yeah, well there was there was like there was like a three-panel comic, right? Yeah, and then I wrote there was those. like something printed underneath the three-panel comic as yeah, I remember. I,
1: I wrote the three panels. $25 oh a joke.
0: Do you remember any of the jokes you wrote no. for for no. Bazooka Joe Morton the gang? No. I can't think of any other characters besides Bazooka Joe and Mort. Mort was the one with the turtleneck that covered his face.
1: Yeah, what well, what was his name? I mean, maybe he didn't have a name. <laughs> But when Fear Street started really doing well, and when Goosebumps had this amazing success, I mean it just I, I then I really got very serious about what I was doing and I was of course enjoying it so much more it was such a surprise do you think that in part you were
0: look this is a this- This is a psychoanalysis question for which I apologize in advance. Oh, boy. But you were the one who brought up being serious earlier. Do you think that the fact that you started writing in a situation where your folks maybe kind of thought it was a waste, you weren't getting a lot of positive feedback for it from teachers, and it was obviously much more impractical than becoming an electrician or whatever? Do you think that feeling of needing to do it in a way that
1: made it a job ever left you? I don't know. I, I the feeling of surprise never left. I, that's too deep for me, I think. I've <laughs> never seriously. I don't know if I can answer that question. It's just what I've always done. People always say, "What else would you do?" If you didn't, but that's what, it's the only thing I've ever done. I mean, I was an editor for a while, but I don't know.
0: Well, R.L. Stein, I sure appreciate you coming on the show. You're
1: every bit as jovial as your former pen name, Jovial Bob. Thank you, Jesse. Hey, this has really been fun. R.L. Stein, His newest book is called
0: Stein Tingler's. It's a collection of 10 short horror stories for kids. Go get it from your local bookstore. It's the Bullseye Halloween Spectacular. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's time now for the craziest... Day of my entire career. deck, Monet Exchange. Monet is a drag queen, an icon in that world, a legend on RuPaul's drag race. On that show, she showcased her many talents, including a breathtaking opera performance.
2: Vera, Vera.
0: Monet Exchange is also the co-host of the 2022 Hulu-ween Drag Stravaganza on Hulu.
2: We've been dragged to a world full of fright, of things that creep and crawl and go bump in the night. It's glam and its core, it's bloody couture, and every freaky thing we have ever seen before.
0: Here's the premise: Monet and her co-host Ginger Minge get stuck in an old haunted television. And the only way out. Is to host a hilarious, larger-than-life variety special: sketches, musical numbers, cameos—the whole nine yards. When we asked Monet Exchange about the craziest day of her entire career, she had a story locked and loaded. We'll let her take it from here.
2: My name is Monet Exchange, and this is the craziest day of my entire career. Okay, so the craziest day of my career, I had, you know, I just competed on RuPaul's Drag Race season 10, where I was voted Miss Congeniality. And um, I was really feeling my superstar celebrity drag fantasy and um, I was ready to take America by storm. So I was doing a club tour at different clubs all over the country, uh, you know, in Seattle, in San Diego, all these places. And I found myself. I ended up in El Paso, Texas um, for a night that I'll never forget.. You are I was doing this thing back then of propositioning the audience um, to (laughs) buy me tequila. And if you bought me tequila, I would drink it. And I just got drunker and drunker as the night went on. And, you know, I've been drinking since I was in high school, you know, and I have never, ever been blackout drunk. It was my first time ever being blackout drunk. And since then, it has not happened again. For folks who have never seen me live, this was was 2018. This was Monet four years ago. A lot has changed and grown in four years. I don't necessarily do the club circuit anymore, but back then, what you would see, I would come out, I would tell a few jokes, I would do a number, um, go do a costume change, and then I would come back out, tell some more jokes, and do another drag number, and then um, that would be it. So that's what uh, my little club shows looked like back in the day. But now, I'm very happy to be doing um, just full club, um, comedy club tours. I do my comedy set for an hour, or right now, currently, I'm on Sibling Rivalry Live, the tour of my podcast about the drag queen. So things have changed, but back then, that's what she was doing, girl: telling jokes, drinking tequila, and um, you know, you fill in the rest. So my assistant, Patty, is watching the chaos as it happens. And he's like, oh, my God, who is this person? I've never seen you like this, Monet. And he's like, you know what? But we need to get to the hotel. We had a very early flight because we had next stop on my little um, club tour. It was in Columbus, Ohio. Our flight was at 4.50 a.m., which means you have to be at the airport by 3.50 a.m., which means and we were in El Paso. So the airport was like, 45 minutes away, which means we had to leave our hotel at 2.50 a.m. Um, and we were still at the club at 1 o'clock in the morning. And he was, like, trying to wrangle, get me together so he can get in an Uber and back to the hotel. But I was just too busy feeling myself, girl. But, you know, he, Patty is a strong five foot three little ginger, and he gathered my big behind and got me in the Uber, and we made our way to the hotel. so we when we're in the uber we get to the hotel it's then it hits me that i need to use the potty number 1 was a knock in and i was like oh my god like what do i do and i just i remember looking at the front desk looking at patty and just letting go and letting god Immediately, in that moment, I started to apologize, profusely. I was like, I am so sorry, I'm so sorry, please. I, asked the, the, I, I apologized, profusely, to the staff. I said, hey, I will, I will clean this up for you. Please, just give me a mop and a I'll take care of this. They, they begged me to leave them alone and go upstairs. And I got in the elevator and went up to my room. I have, like, tidbits of me being in my room. I remember being in the room and saying to myself, okay, you have to pack. But there were so many other thoughts swirling through my brain, and I was like, you need to pack, but you also need to sleep. So I chose sleep, and to Patty's dismay, when he was time for him to come back to help to, to get the Uber to help me in my bags and go downstairs, I was unresponsive. So Patty, little Patty, had to go down to the front desk and ask him to call my room to the phone ring because my phone, my cell phone was dead. As they called me. I jumped them out of sleep, answered the phone. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then he came upstairs and he saw my things were still not packed. And I said, just give me five minutes, just five minutes. I will pack it, which I did. I just got all my things together, put them in my suitcase and I was downstairs ready to go. And in fact, five minutes, maybe seven. So we're on this flight and we got, we were on the flight from Atlanta to Atlanta. Everything was fine. I slept. I was feeling good. We got off when we were getting off the plane. The flight attendant goes, he's like, Oh my God, Monique change. I love you so much. You were so good on season 10. I was rooting for you. I was like, Oh my God, I was rooting for me too. That's crazy. And he then said, um, can I, can I have a picture? And I said, of course. So we take the picture together. And you know, civilians who don't do drag are just genuine, generally bad at taking pictures. There's nobody that flash, there's shadows everywhere, it's just not good. So I always say, let me see the picture to make sure it's okay. And I took his phone to look at the picture and I was shocked because I was still in full drag. I had never taken my makeup off from the night before. I just had a face full of makeup and like some joggers and like a, a, a hoodie from Aero from, from Pastel or something with a full face of makeup on. So then we get to Columbus. I'm actually, we check into the hotel, and I open my backpack. and I'm like, "Hey, where is my computer? I, I definitely had it." And I immediately thought, "Oh God, you just you in your state, you left it somewhere in your hotel room in El Paso." So I text Patty. I'm like, "Please call the hotel. Somebody, they need to like by the way to overnight my computer to me." Yada yada yada. And I open my suitcase. So I start getting my makeup out. I have to put my makeup off to get ready for the next show. And as soon as I open like my, my my suitcase, I just see my laptop is is flat face open in my in my luggage, not closed like a normal person would. I just in my state, just dumped it open face into my computer. I mean, into into my luggage. And but you know, it's Mac, honey. Steve Jobs got me together because it was fine. My computer was absolutely fine. I think this was one of the craziest days of my career because, you know, I was young. Uh four years ago. I was just I was I was just I was just younger and I, I looking back, I would never do that again. And I feel and I used to work at a hotel. That's what I did before. Um drag was I was a front desk agent. I know how annoying it is to have drunk guests come into a hotel. And and I wasn't even just drunk, I fully, you know let go of God in the lobby of this person's work. So that part I'm not very proud of, and I feel so bad. And if I ever go to El Paso again, I'm going to, I'm going to ask, I I think I remember his name. His name was Jeffrey. I'm going to ask, is Jeffrey here? And I want to give Jeffrey a hundred thousand dollars. Something that you went on RuPaul's Drag Race to, to apologize in the tone, but I did, um, yeah, so in hindsight, I would never behave that way again. And, you know, I think it's, this is a very, it was a very big lesson for me in, in, in knowing your limits and um, not being raggedy and messy in El Paso. Maybe in New York, not El Paso.
0: Monet Exchange on the craziest day of her entire career. Make sure to watch Monet Exchange and Ginger Minj on Hulu's 2022 Huluween Drag Stravaganza. Monet Exchange is also touring a lot these days. We'll have a link to dates on our website. Visit the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're doing things a little differently this week. It's our 2022 Bullseye Halloween Spectacular. My next guest is Anna Fabrega. She's a comedian, actor, and writer. She worked on The Chris Gethard Show, had parts in High Maintenance, and At Home with Amy Sedaris, but she's probably best known as a star and co-creator of one of my favorite shows on television, Los Espookies. <laughs> It is a little awkward for me to be hosting a Halloween spectacular because I am not a horror guy. I am not into slasher movies. I am not into ghost movies. I am not into jump scares. None of these things appeal to me. And I want you to know that Losis Spookies is not a horror show, or at least not really a horror show. It's about four weirdos who love horror, and they run a company where they go around town and bring scenes from horror movies to real life— Or, I guess, maybe the kinds of things you would see in horror movies. Demonic possessions, sea monsters, creepy aliens, that kind of thing. It is a sweet, goofy, and surreal program about friendship and carving a place in the world for yourself. And frankly, the spooky stuff is almost immediately incidental. Los de Spookies just wrapped up its second season, which was even better than the first one, which I already really loved, I'm thrilled to have Anna Fabrega on the show. Let's get into it. Anna Fabrega, welcome to both. I am so, so happy to have you on the show. I'm such a fan.
3: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: You're from Scottsdale, Arizona and grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah. Um, What did you think of Scottsdale, Arizona when you were a kid?
3: Um, We moved there when I was in first grade, like in the middle of the school year. Um, We had been in Iowa before that. And so, you know, aesthetically, very different from Iowa. Um, I, you know, in my teenage years, I felt just kind of like bored. There's not a ton to do there. I mean, I think most places when you're a teenager, you only have so many options. But I definitely knew I wanted to leave. So when I was, you know, 18 or, I mean, 17 and I was senior in high school and was applying to schools, so I was like, I want to go to New York. Um, but when I started going back, once I moved to New York... I started to appreciate the uh, the desert landscape much more. I took it for granted uh, growing up that it's really beautiful.
0: I read you describing somewhere feeling like you didn't realize the extent to which you didn't fit in when you were an adolescent until you were in New York and had perspective on your adolescence like you didn't have an unhappy childhood. it was just. You were like, oh, wow, there's all this possibility.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that, like, by no means was I, like, um, you know, unhappy or anything. Like, I had my friends. I was, like, you know, the type of kid in school who was, like, I wasn't, like, the popular kid, but I was friends with everyone. So, it's, like, the popular kids liked me, but I wasn't hanging out with them, you know. I was, like, you know, very much had, like, my small group of close friends. Um, and we had shared interests and, you know, would would bond over similar things. Um, And then going to New York, like the first four years that I was here when I was in school, I didn't find people that I felt like I had, you know, things I could connect with or felt like we had similar, you know, sense of humor or interest or anything. So then I just kind of went like full, like, I don't know, like sort of reclusive. And like my, my sister was living in New York at the time, so I would just hang out with her and her friends and then just like treat school as like put my head down, do go to class, go to work go home, do my homework. Like I wasn't very social, uh, in college. And then when I graduated a year after I graduated and I started doing stand up, is when I was like, Oh, here's where my people are. Here are where like the people that, uh, I do sort of feel like I belong with are, and then found my like community that I, that I didn't ever really find when I was in college after college.
0: What was it that didn't feel like it was a fit with the other kids when you were in college?
3: Just like you know when you make a joke and someone just goes like "you're so weird," just like that feeling of like "oh, like you don't, you don't want to like joke back. You just think that it's like absurd that somebody would say this. You know what I mean? It was that sort of feeling. I mean,
0: look, I'm going to play a clip from the Chris Catherd show for which you wrote, um, and I, like, I just don't think I can describe how particular. Your work is without playing a little bit of it. And, you know, the videos you make for social, for social media, maybe are, are, uh, a little short and visual, but there's enough words in this. And, and basically this is you after a writer's meeting, convincing Chris and, uh, the show's head writer or director that you're, that you have some ideas that they need to hear and are the, initially they're going to be all ideas about scorpions. <laughs> and there's a picture of a scorpion on your binder of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that we hear, I don't remember if there's scorpion jokes in there but let's listen to the clip.
3: So um, the first idea, really simple. Uh, I'm walking down the street. There's a sign that says wet paint. And I walk up to it, I touch it, if it's dry, I remove the sign. Yeah. And if it's wet, I leave it. Okay, uh, there's one where I'm playing baseball. Uh, I'm up to bat, and as the ball comes, I drop the bat and I punch the ball, and then I run. So it's like, I mean, the backstory could be that I used to be a boxer. Or we could do it where instead when the ball comes, instead of dropping the bat, I turn around and I hit the ball. So it keeps going that way.
0: Can you do that?
3: I mean, we could try.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you can see how this in little moments can play on social media, especially to people who signed up for it. How did it play when you started doing stand-up open mics?
3: So I like, you know, had been making videos and I didn't know what it would look like to try to sort of take what I like doing online and do it live. And so the first few times I went to open mics, I was like, well, stand up is like a setup and a punchline and you tell a story. And so I had sort of like the line that I thought was funny. And then I would write like context around it so that it would be like a little story the way I thought stand up had to be. And I did that a few times. And I was like, this doesn't feel right, like, what if I tried to just say the line that's funny to me? And then I did that, and I felt like, oh, okay, this is, I think, the way that, you know, I should approach it, that, like, I don't need to try to make this look like what I think stand-up has to be. And a big part of sort of that moment of, like, oh, I can do anything was, like, starting to go to mics that were, like, from other people that had more similar sensibilities and kind of seeing, like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, stand-up is solo comedic performance and you can interpret it however you want and do anything you want within it and the type of like you know specials on comedy central that i saw growing up is like one way to do this but it's not the only way um and so then yeah i, start, I, I like you know i think the first few years i was doing stand-up was kind of trying to figure out like what does like how do i take the thing that i think is funny um and like present that in a live format
0: what was the first thing that you did on stage that really worked that you feel like still kind of represents you?
3: Um, I mean, I, I remember the first mic, open mic I went to where I was like, I'm going to try to just say the lines that are funny to me. Um, it was so I had been going to an open mic that was at UCB because I didn't know where else to go.
0: The Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New
3: York. Yeah, there were open mics there. And so I would go there and I felt like this doesn't feel right. And then some friends who I had known in college through another friend, they went to a different school. They were like, we kinda wanna do stand-up too. And there's this mic in Bushwick um, called Do Something. And it was one that uh River Ramirez would host with at the time DJ Jeep Grand Cherokee, um, who would kind of do like psychotic visuals and torture people during their set sometimes. But it was like, you know, they were like, let's go to this mic. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna tr- maybe this will be the mic where I try to just say the lines. And I remember, like, I had a joke. I mean, I don't think it's a good joke, but it kind of embodies the like that moment of like, oh yeah, I'm gonna. I think this is my thing. Um, Was just kind of like marching in place for a sec, and then like, like sighing and saying that like, I hate going upstairs. It was something (laughs) like that, and it's like whatever. And people like really laughed, and I was like, oh yeah, I can just like do this, and people get it. Um, And it's maybe not like. A joke, but there's something funny about someone like just doing that, and people go, you know, they relate to it. Like, yeah, it's tiring to go upstairs.
0: <laughs> I mean, speaking of not um, not recognizing where you belonged or not recognizing the extent to which you were out of place as a as a teenager and adolescent, I read that you realized you were queer, like as an adult.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I was like um I mean it's like funny now cuz it seems so obvious even from like the youngest age like photos of me I'm like dressed like a tomboy. I I mean I'm dressing things that like queer people wear now. I have like a little chain. I'm like, "Oh wow, I really like, you know, when I was 5, it was so obvious." But I think part of it was just kind of like the environment I grew up in was like very heteronormative and straight. And like everyone at my school was like, there were no openly gay people. There was like maybe a couple people in like the the theater department that people were like, I think he's gay, but no one was like really open. It, It was very like, you know, I don't know, not a place I think that sort of lent itself to that sort of like exploration. And so I just thought like, well, I'm not really that attracted to guys. Um, So, like, maybe I'm just asexual. It, like, didn't occur to me that, like, maybe I like non-cis males. Like, I don't know. And so then, like, yeah, in college I was similarly just, like, not dating, not interested, nothing. Very, like, sort of, uh, I think, like, so out of touch with that part of myself and not uh, open to the possibility that, like, maybe I wasn't straight. I was actually thinking about this the other day. Um, I... I was in college. I forget what year it was, but it was the year that Blue is the Warmest Color came out. And I felt like, huh, I want to see that movie. I don't know why, but I want to see it. And I go to the theater and I'm like so self-conscious going to the theater because I'm like, people are going to think I'm gay because I want to see this movie. And I was like by myself. I was like, oh, my God, like I hope I, I don't see anyone at the theater. You know, I went to like the IFC Center downtown. And in the middle of the movie, there's a problem with the projector and have to stop the movie and the lights come up. And I feel like, oh, my God, now the whole theater is going to be looking at me and thinking that I'm gay because I'm here. And like it was such I mean, when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, my God, I was like had so much like sort of like deep internalized homophobia and was like terrified at the thought of like, what if I what if I am gay? And. And then seeing that movie, I was like, oh, my God, I relate to this. And I was like, no, 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 no. This can't be happening. This can't be me. No, it's not me. And then it still took me, like, a while to sort of, like, come to terms with it and, 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 like, be okay with it. And then once I did, I was like, oh, damn. Like, if I had done this a long time ago, I would have felt so much happier, I'm sure. You know? It's not like something that I, like— necessarily knew and was repressing I just like didn't know and then once I thought maybe it was that I still needed time to be like you know it's okay to like explore it and see if it is but yeah Blue is the Warmest Color was (laughs) huge for me.
0: (laughs) I feel like Los Spookies is one of the queerest shows on television and I don't know exactly I mean there's gay characters on it but like I don't know exactly what besides that makes it the one of the queer shows on television.
3: I, I think it's that, like, the the show is not trying to be anything or, like, trying to fit any sort of mold. It just sort of, like, is itself and it is what it is. And, like, I don't know. I think, like, especially, like, right in the second season, I feel like the show is so just okay with being itself and, like... There's no agenda, there's no like sort of desire to teach the audience. It's just sort of like, no, this is just what like comes out of us and we're you know Julio and I are both queer, and a lot of the actors on our sh- on the show that are friends of ours are queer and it's so just you know it just is but it, but it, but I think it's just because we're just being ourselves when we write it
0: when you when you were writing los spogie um <laughs> Like, the thought of you handing it in to the executive who's also in charge of, you know, um, the Sex and the City reboot and Hacks (laughs) and, like, none of those things being bad. Like, I especially like Hacks, but, um, you know, just, like, to somebody who's in charge of regular television shows.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, like, I think that Julio and I didn't realize when we were making the first season how sort of unusual it was to be able to make this type of show. Like, and, you know, we weren't involved in pitching or selling the show. Like, Fred had sold the pilot to HBO about, like, a group of horror makeup enthusiasts in Mexico City. That was, like, the original idea. And then once they ordered a script, he brought us on board to develop it. And then it became, you know, Los Spookies. Um, and so I think that, like, had Julio and I gone in and tried to pitch what the show ultimately became, I'm sure we would have gotten a lot of, like, what are you, what is this? Why? No. And so it feels almost like we were able to, like, Trojan horse the show, like, into the, like, you know, people's TVs just via, like, how we went about getting involved. But, like, yeah, I I, I do feel really, like, fortunate. And I mean, and especially, like, once I started to, like, pitch my own projects and I saw the way that people sort of react to or have a hard time, I think, feeling comfortable with ideas that maybe aren't as, like, linear as they're used to or as sort of, you know, conventional story structure that they're used to, like, then I was like, oh, man, it feels like a miracle that we got this show made. Um, and and I think it really, you know, HBO has been so supportive in letting us, you know, make it the way that we want to make it. And um, and I feel very fortunate for that.
0: I mean, right from the start, L- Los Spookies is a show about a group of, uh, like a crew, like a group of friends who work together as real-life special effects artists. Sort Tricking.
3: of, yeah. It's like it's like they like deceive people. <laughs> they yeah. help people trick other people. <laughs> and like when they're
0: doing, when they're like doing a, a haunted house for an inheritance. Like, uh, you have to spend the night in this haunted house thing all of the all of the effects that they do involve like pulleys, like visible pulleys like dayglo paint.
3: <laughs> it's very like scrappy and d i y like um you know, we wanted it to feel very like practical, like they're not doing like. David Blaine-style optical illusions. Like, no, you can see the rope and pulleys if you just look closely. But people buy it.
0: But this is also a program where, like, I was just watching the first episode of season two, and it features heavily what, it, what appears to be the ghost of a beauty contestant who's been impaled on an anchor. Yes. And she doesn't, she's not, doesn't come from pulley's world.
3: No. So it's like a mix of like the things that they do. We want them to feel practical. But then in their world, it's just sort of like anything can kind of happen. And it is kind of like surreal and abstract and absurd. Um, But that the effects that they do are kind of like lame. Like even in the first episode of season two, when they do the ghosts, it's like it looks like lame. It doesn't look cool and good. It looks just kind of like, oh, we see the ropes when you guys are going up, you know, but people buy it, which I think is really funny.
0: We'll wrap up with Anna Fabrega after a quick break. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and Frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week... For My Brother, My Brother and Me. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Anna Fabrega. She's the star and co-creator of HBO's Los Espookies. One of the things that's special about Los Espookies to me is that Tati in particular, but s- several of the main characters of the show... Have such a warm positivity, and that isn't always a quality on a on a comedy thing that's this odd or, or distinctive. It is something that you see a lot in in Fred Armisen's work, who originally created the show, and it's something that I feel from you know your online work that I've seen. But was that a choice n- n- to make a show about that's theoretically about uh, dark goths? um, so wide-eyed and smiling?
3: Um, I mean, I don't know if it was necessarily a conscious choice. I think that Julio and I are, like, optimistic people, and, like, so the characters that we, you know, created for the show wound up being like that, and also it's, like, you know, goth people are not just, like, frowning all the time. Like, they laugh with their friends and they're, you know, have a full range of emotions. So we're like, okay, let's have their, like, ringleader and then they'll be, like, really sweet and have, like, a little dog that he takes care of and, like, you know, just things like that. Um, but but yeah, I do think that overall it's a very, like, happy and, like, upbeat show, you know, in a way that, that I think is, yeah, nice. <laughs>
0: So, the show was originally as you said gonna be set in Mexico City, and one of the stars of the show, Bernardo Velasco, who plays reinaldo, who's the like the the mastermind of this operation such as it is or at least he's the uh uh he's the guy who keeps barreling forward at the very least he's Mexican how did you and he feels very mexican like as a guy in la from a mexican-american neighborhood in san francisco like he feels very mexican and he also like as a straight guy i just want to be his friend so desperately (laughs) just he's just everyone's dream of of what your dude friend would be um attitude wise so how did you uh how did you cast him
3: So, like, when we were making the pilot and casting the pilot, at this time the show was still going to be set in Mexico. So we were like, okay, Julio and I are not Mexican, Fred's not Mexican, we need our other, like, lead actors to be Mexican. And the director who did the first episode knew uh, Bernardo, um, because Bernardo also works as a casting director, and he, he works a lot with, like, found actors, he's very good at, like, yeah, if finding people that are not actors and training them for film and tv and stuff and he's like a talented stage actor too and so our director for the pilot was like you know we like he should audition and as soon as we saw his tape we were like oh my god yes it's him of course it's him um and and the same with um cassandra who plays ursula she's also um mexican and similarly like yeah once we saw her we're like oh yeah it's gotta be her um and then once the show was no longer set in Mexico, you know, and there was no sort of parameters on where they live or anything, then it was like, yeah, you guys can keep your accents. You can, you know, infuse uh, your dialogue with, like, Mexican slang if you want. Um, I mean, especially Bernardo's character uses a lot of, of slang. But, but yeah, it was like, I'm so happy that we sort of wound up picking from that uh, pool in Mexico because otherwise we wouldn't have, have found Uh, the two of them.
0: Velasco has a, like a level of friendship charisma that is so extraordinary that it leads you to believe that all of these characters would be friends with each other. (laughs) And (laughs) that feels to me like the, the special trick of Los Espookies is, well, Julio Torres as a performer is so sui generis that you can hardly imagine him talking to anyone else. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Much less having a relationship with them. Cause he's just so his own thing. And your character is such a doofus. And you know what I mean? Like there's yeah. so much going on there that you that you like need somebody that you could believe could bind any group of human beings together.
3: Yeah. And I mean, and that's Bernardo in real life. He is so sweet and so kind and charming and just like Everyone that that meets him is, like, in love because he's he's really, like, the best. And same with Cassandra. Like, when we got to know each other shooting the first season, I thought, like, man, we really lucked out. Like, that we have these people that we're going to be working with a lot and that we really like and get along with who bring so much to, to the characters. And, like, I mean, especially after we shot the first season, I feel like Bernardo and Cassandra's characters became so much more clear to us and helped us write better stories for them in season two. And, yeah, they're, like, as sort of—I um, mean, Bernardo is, is as, like, captivating and friendly and, like, lovable as his character.
0: What's something that you learned about his character from seeing him perform it? The,
3: like, he can be so, like, earnest and sweet in a way that I think I hadn't anticipated with the character. Like, we knew, like, oh, it's maybe it's kind of funny if he's, like, a little bit of, like— like a mama's boy or something like didn't fully like grow up still at home but then the way that he played it was like that but not sort of making fun of it it was like very sweet and like um yeah i think just like he's so like well he has good intentions and is like always putting other people before himself um and yeah it made it then like i mean especially His storyline in season two is a lot about, like, the sort of pitfalls of putting other people before yourself. And I think we wouldn't have had that storyline had it not been for, you know, how he played him in season one.
0: Had you written jokes in Spanish before you and Julio Torres started writing this show?
3: No, I had never, like, done any work in Spanish before and and the the scripts we initially write them in English knowing that they'll that certain dialogue will be said in Spanish and read in English so there's that process of like okay we want it to look funny on screen for people that are reading it um and then you know in the back of our heads we also know how it will be spoken in Spanish and so we do all the English versions so that the network can read them and understand them and then there's the the Spanish pass um and when I like take a stab at it, like I always need to have Julio whose Spanish is who's stronger than mine. Like, you know, we'll we'll look at things together and be like, oh, actually maybe it should be phrased like this or like that. Um but yeah, it's a funny kind of way of thinking because we we know it'll be said in one language and read in another and we want both of them to be funny.
0: It's such an amazing thing about the show, which is probably like eighty-five, ninety percent in Spanish. There's some parts are in English, but um, it, 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 substantially in Spanish with English subtitles on the screen that, you know, s- subtitled comedy almost never plays because you lose, the, you lose the rhythm of the speech and you lose particularities of the language, all the jokes about puns and so on and so forth. And it plays so beautifully on Los Spookies. It is so funny reading the words. And so what what do you have to get right to make that work? Like, what is different about writing a joke and imagining it being read on a subtitle in front of someone speaking in a different language?
3: Um, I mean, a lot of it, like, the subtitling process for the show is so meticulous because it's not just about, like, you know, we want to phrase this right, um, but we also want to make sure that the way the timing of when it appears on screen is, is good that if the text is broken up and we're going to see like the rest of the sentence on the next like screen or whatever, um, we want it to be broken up in a way where it's like, okay, the joke will be in, uh, in the second part and not the first part. And so like, I don't know, it's just a matter of like tinkering and finding ways that like, you know, make us laugh when we read it because that's how a lot, you know, a lot of the audience in the U S is going to be experiencing it.
0: I mean, it, also is such a comedy of images and ideas. You know, like it's full of jokes, but there are no, I don't know, 30 rock jokes that are a lot of funny words that end in K and uh, two deep cut cultural references. And it's like, here's an interesting idea.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Julio and I are not like like very pun oriented writers. Um, and so luckily, I mean, I think if we were, the show would would not uh, work in two languages like this. Um, and yeah, I think we are more drawn to, like, ideas that make us laugh. And sometimes they're, like, very visual things where, like, reading it is not as important as seeing it. And sometimes it's about, like, yeah, the thing that somebody says and making sure that, like, that looks funny reading.
0: How do people talk to you about it differently who are... Watching it in Spanish, so to speak, uh, rather than watching it in English.
3: I think that for people who are like bilingual, um, because most people like that grow up outside the U.S. will learn English in school. So I feel like a lot of like my family, at least in Panama, like they all speak English, and so people. I think if you speak both languages, you'll get like certain little jokes. um, You know, will will come across more in Spanish than in the text. Like it's still like, funny one way or the other, but I think if someone's bilingual, they will pick up on, like, a little more things here and there that are, like, almost like an extra little joke that if you get it in Spanish um, and you can read it in English, like, it it just, like, pays off almost, like, a little bit better.
0: Are there any things that you cut from the show because they were too weird?
3: No. I mean, anything that's cut is because we don't have enough time for it. Like, um... We, we haven't ever really had anything come up like that in the writing process where HBO goes like, now, wait a minute, guys, this is too much. Like they're very like hands off, like make the show you want to make. And we're like, I don't feel limited in like, you know, oh, well, we can't write that because how are we ever going to do that? Like our production crew down there and, and our art. Um, production designer Jorge Zambrano and our wardrobe um, head Muriel Parra are like so talented and so funny and they can like do anything and so it's like very fun to write sort of knowing like yeah maybe I don't know exactly how we will shoot an eclipse but Jorge will figure it out and he does you know so it's it's like a very fun uh, and, and free sort of way to write.
0: I was very scared that the show wasn't going to get a second season, uh, particularly when after the first season was announced, it, it got shut down right at the very beginning because of COVID. I wonder if you kind of had your, if there was any point in there where you had your life flash before your eyes, so to speak, where you were like, <laughs> look, here I am with my friend. We both, we have two of the most uh, specific comedic sensibilities in all of comedy. Uh, we're making this show that is a really beautiful expression of both of them. We may never get this opportunity again.
3: Well, so the the sh- after the first season came out uh, in the summer of 2019, we started writing the second season. And we wrote all of the second season in the fall of 2019. And then at the beginning of 2020, we go down to Santiago. We shoot almost four full episodes. And then the pandemic starts. So we leave with like two episodes and a handful of scenes left. And that that was kind of frustrating that like, oh, my gosh, we were so close to finishing. Uh, Like if truly if we had stayed like three more weeks, we would have finished. And so then, you know, we come back here and it's just a waiting game. You know, at that time, everyone's like, oh, maybe in like a month it'll blow over. Obviously, that's not the case. And HBO kept telling us, like, don't worry, you're going to finish. Don't worry, you're going to finish. And so I did have some sort of peace of mind that like we will finish. I just didn't know when. And so after one year of waiting, like because we were also dependent on what the COVID protocols in Chile were like, they were a lot more strict than they were here in the U.S. So like we couldn't go and shoot the way that people could, you know, shoot after just a couple months in the States. And so, yeah, we were just like, all right, well, I guess we'll we'll hope that cases and things are like under control in Chile and that they let, you know, open the border and that we can go back and, and finish up. And so. Yeah. Once we hit the like two year mark and we got the green light that like everything is like, you know, because there were times where we thought like, okay, now we'll be able to go and we would start planning and then they would roll back their reopening because cases rose. And then it was like, okay, I guess we're we're waiting again. So, yeah, it wasn't like I didn't think like, man, what if we never finish? I just thought like, what if it's a really long time before we finish? Because I think HBO was like, you know, it's just two more episodes. So just go finish it. But yeah, I mean I know that there there were other productions that were just kind of like that's it you're done. Sorry if you didn't finish. Um so I am very grateful that we were able to finish what we started. It it, it felt like it was maybe going to be never ending.
0: In a broader sense, did you ever have that feeling? Like leaving aside whether you were going to finish the second season, were you have you had the feeling like how could I how could I ever get to do something like this again?
3: Yeah, I mean I, like There's. I didn't realize how how sort of unique the opportunity was that we had. I just kind of thought like, oh yeah, I got to do a TV show. Cool. Like I didn't realize that like until I started to pitch other projects, that people are gonna go like, wait, what? (laughs) Why is it? Why is that happening? You know? And and it really feels like such a gift to have this show where we can really like write whatever we want, and you know have the trust from, from the network in us to like make the show that we want to make. But yeah, I mean, I have times where I'm like, man, is anyone ever going to buy anything else from me? Because everyone thinks it's too niche, you know, that's what my, my main sort of thing is like, it's too niche. And I'm like, yeah, but, um, I wish I was more broad, but I'm not. So like, you know, it's going to be niche the way Los Boogies is niche, but it finds its, it's finds its audience.
0: Uh, I'm looking at my imaginary list of questions I was going to ask you, and there's only one left. It says, uh, will Tati be my friend and can we hold hands?
3: Uh, Yeah, Tati will be friends. Although I think Tati is the type of person that if you hold her hand, she's going to think it's romantic.
0: I mean, I'll watch the show with my wife, so I think she would understand.
3: (laughs) In Tati's head, any sort of physical contact with a man is romantic. (laughs) That's how Tati moves through the world. It's like yeah it's she's um she's not someone to do to like flirt with if you're not ready to to jump into something serious.
0: Well, Anna Fabrega, i'm I'm so grateful to you for coming on the show. I just couldn't be a bigger fan of Los spookies and and of your work. I'm so happy I got to talk to you.:
3: Thank you so much. It was so nice talking with you and and yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Anna Fabrega, folks. You can stream both seasons of Los Spookies on HBO Max and you absolutely should. It is so fantastic. I will tell you this. I texted a very snobby comedy writer friend of mine the other day. "Hey, are you watching Los Spookies?" And he texted me back, "Yes, that is the only comedy show that makes me laugh." Los Spookies. It rules. You don't have to be a weird snob. that's the end of another episode of bullseye bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of maximum fun in and around greater los angeles california my house was built in 1888 and i think it is safe to assume it is haunted but i just want to let ghosts know that i am super cool and chill about uh ghosts and really pro-ghost and they shouldn't uh freak me out not because i'm scared of them it's not that i'm scared of them it's just that they should know that i'm super chill and i'm on their side and they shouldn't scare me. Our show is produced by speaking into microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Robey. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJ W, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It was written and recorded by the Go team, thanks to them and Memphis Industries, their label for providing it. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there, follow us, and we'll share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember all great radio hosts have a signature sign off.
2: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.